Hello, amigos and amigas. Welcome to episode 30 of Abscond with Ethan Renault, the podcast by me, Ethan Renault, where the name doesn't really make sense, but we still go with it anyway. We get away with it. We abscond with a name that doesn't really make much sense. In this episode, I'm continuing the series on covenants. This is part three, where I'm going to jump backwards in time. Because in the first two, we talked about Noah, and then Abram, slash Abraham. And now we're going backwards in time to talk about Adam and Eve. So this will be anachronistic, but then hopefully we'll do the rest of them in order. Uh, I'm excited to jump back into Genesis 1 through 3, because it's super fascinating. You'll probably see why we couldn't start with this one. Because as we talked about the three elements of a covenant in the previous episodes... These ones are really out of order and strange, and it's easier to start with a more straightforward one like Noah or Abraham. Before I dive in, um, big shout out to my producer, Mark. He's the one who publicizes these, puts them on the internet, gets, gets them out there, and uh, does all the heavy lifting for me. So um, if you want to help he and I out with the show, head to patreon.com slash that's my name. Just look at the podcast title for spelling, patreon.com slash and you can l- find out about supporting us for as little as $1 a month. Now, if you can buy one latte a day for $16, surely you can spare $1 a month for this theological input into your day, or maybe into your week, since I'm trying to do one a week. So, um, yeah. Patreon.com slash Ethereno help Mark and I out because posting these is not free. Now, if you also have not heard the previous Covenants episodes, you need, need, need to go back and listen to them because I'll be talking about a lot of stuff that builds on those two episodes. You will not understand this one if you don't go back and listen to the first two. So let's dive in. This is episode 30 of Epscon with Ethan now talking about the Adamic or Edenic Covenant. Okay, so I'm in Genesis 1, and the temptation for me in this episode will probably be to get sidetracked talking about things like, you know, creation creationism, sin, shame, and I probably will. Um, But that's just a heads up that I'll probably get distracted a lot um, in the first three books, first three chapters of Genesis because they're fascinating and there's so much packed into them. Um, One thing I won't get sidetracked by is the whole scientific debate, the age of the earth, because honestly, I don't know. And the, uh, the tension for me is not like, do I think one is bad and one is good and one is secular and one's Christian? Like, did evolution happen? The only firm stance I have on any of that is that humans did not come from animals. I mean, I just like see a movie or hear songs and hear stories and these things stir up in me and they are, you know, emotions at the core, but they're also moments of transcendence and, um, There are things that connect us to God and reflect the image of God in us. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but 
Um, basically it's just, you know, you don't see that in a dog. You don't necessarily, like you might see empathy. Like if you're crying, your dog comes up and cuddles with you. That's not the same as like a transcendent soul that can connect with this deity, um, this Yahweh covenant making God that, um, you know, builds empires and tells stories and writes poems and sings songs. And, you know, like there's just absolutely no way I could see us coming from animals in a purely biological way. And that's not a scientific argument. That's more of an emotional argument. But, uh, yeah, that's, but as far as the age of the earth, the theory I've most um, been convinced by is what's called gap theory. So let's get into the text real quick. Um, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Quick note, this will come up in a future series I'm doing on heaven and hell, but whenever the Bible refers to heavens, you have to remember this is written by ancient people, probably around or after the time of Moses, and whenever they use the word heaven, keep this in mind whenever you read your Bible, when you see the word heaven, it's referring to the sky, the clouds, the sun, the stars, and the moon. Because if you're an ancient person, basically living any time before the previous, you know, century or two, you have no idea what those things are. You look up and you see them, and they bring rain, and, you know, the moon is there at night, and the stars are there at night, and the sun's there at the daytime. But you have no idea what they are. So when it says the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean God made a place for him to live and a place for us to live. It's ancient people talking about, you know, the land and the sea and the things that we can touch. And it's talking about the sky and the things that we can't touch. So God makes these heavens and the earths, the heavens and the earth. And then what gap theory suggests is that there's, you know, this space where they're created, but then there's billions of years. There could be endless eons before Genesis 1 verse 2 where God takes these raw materials and begins forming them. Tim Keller says that it's kind of like a comb being run through hair. Like God is um, taking these materials and organizing them into um, a way that's lively and sustainable and, um, yeah, is beautiful. And honestly, if you really think about it, in the next couple verses, the next couple days of creation... How can you have a day, a 24-hour day rotation of the earth, if there is no sun or moon or light or dark, you know? Um, so that's a pretty convincing argument for why it's not referring to 24-hour days, because those types of days can't possibly exist until, like, the third day. Um, or, sorry, the fourth day, actually. So that means that the whole days one through four, there's no sun or moon, Therefore, how can there be 24-hour days, you know? Um, the, the Hebrew word day that I think mixes up a lot of English readers, the Hebrew word day is aeon, which just refers to a period of time. It doesn't even mean necessarily day. So when it says that the first day, it's in Hebrew actually just saying like the first period of time, you know? Um, but it breaks up into that seven-day week, I think, so that, it's in a way that humans are familiar with and understand, and there's this like divine accommodation happening 
God stooping down to interact with our language and our understanding of things. So, anyway, I'll get off that topic because I could get sidetracked there for a while. Um, God is making this, and this is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, in Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So much packed in there. <laughs> we could spend all day on Genesis 1, verse 2. A um, couple things. Um, the earth was, the Hebrew there is tohu vavohu. You should say that out loud. Tohu vavohu, or tohu vabohu. Um, did you say it out loud just now? Tohu vavohu. You should. Um, it means like wild and waste, like chaotic. And um, ancient peoples, all like Sumerian cultures, all ancient cultures saw water as the symbol of chaos. Like they would see the ocean, you see hurricanes, you see whirlpools, whatever, and it's like chaotic. So water is a symbol of chaos. So whenever you see water, it's always like, um, there's so much symbolism to it. It can mean chaos, it can signify cleansing, like, uh, you know, the passing through of the Red Sea is like the cleansing of Egypt, like the cleansing of this identity of slavery for the Israelites. Um, so there's chaos, there's cleansing, there's all the symbolism in the water. And it's interesting that the Hebrew storytellers choose water as the starting place for God to create his world, you know? Um, not fire, not land, but water. Um, it's just an interesting thought. We could go down that rabbit hole, but we won't. The more interesting thing here in this verse is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. That word hovering, honestly, talking about this used to get me choked up because it's so beautiful, <laughs> but that word hovering is used later on in the prophets, um, or maybe it's the Psalms, when it talks about a mother bird hovering over her young little baby birds, like calling them to jump forth from the nest and fly, like, like f hovering over them, flapping her wings, saying, come on, you can do it. Come to life, rise up, take flight. You know, picture this mother bird hovering over her baby birds, teaching them how to fly, teaching them how to come to life, how to you know, basically wake up into lively, you know, existence and being and fly. And it's saying that the Spirit of God is doing the same thing over this world that he's just created. It's dark, it's chaotic, it's wild, and God is there hovering over it saying, hey, you can do this. Come to life. You know, something is about to spring forth in you. There's, I'm about to, you know, breathe life into you and this chaotic water world will soon take life and become this beautiful place where, you know, life happens. So it's this beautiful picture. Um, that's one of the first things that we see God do. We see him create and then we see him hover over his creation, calling it to life. And the thing about the Genesis creation narrative is that it's what's called polemic, meaning um, it's written against, it's written as an attack on other creation stories from Babylon and Sumeria and um, those other ancient people groups that had very different 
pictures of their gods creating the world. So in most of them, the gods are lazy or the gods are angry and they create humans to be their slave drivers. So you can, um, or sorry, they create humans to be their slaves and they're seen as these divine, almighty slave drivers, right? So if your creation myth tells you that the gods are angry and you're their slaves, how do you think you're going to live your life? You're going to live in fear. You're going to wonder if you're doing enough for them. You're going to um, ask questions like, well, shoot, you know, like, maybe we need to sacrifice more babies and throw them in the volcano, or else the gods will be angry and they won't send us rain, you know? If that's your picture of God, it shapes how you live. The Jewish and Christian creation narrative tells us quite the opposite. It tells us that God is creative and that he is hovering over his creation, calling us into life, calling us to take flight like a mama bird over her baby birds, right? Very, very different than every other creation myth at the time. Um, so later, in Genesis uh, 1.28, when it says that God created man in his own image, if God is a creator and God is lively and wants us to come to life, and we're made in his image, what does that tell you about us? It tells you that we should also be creators, creators of things, that we should be fully alive. We should not be chaotic, but we should be orderly. We should live in a way that's peaceful and orderly and not chaotic and wild. And, you know, God kind of sorted those things out in creation and then put Adam and Eve there, to exist in this way that's like him. So God makes us in his image, and um, that word image is the same word used for idol. Kind of strange, um, but uh, it makes a lot of sense. So if there, were an ancient, if there was an ancient person, and they had an idol in their tent, probably carved out of wood or something, an idol of like Baal or Molech or something like that, it would be... They would know that they're not worshiping that little wooden statue, but that the that little wooden statue represents the God behind it whom they are worshiping, right? It's not like they actually thought those little wooden statues were the gods, um, but this is why that shows up in the Ten Commandments later when God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol of your God and worship it, because they, they believe that God is not to be uh, represented in these tiny little wooden figurines, but that God is bigger than that. He's bigger than trees and water and land and rocks, you know? And um, I think God knows the human heart, which will create things for itself to be distracted by, right? So if we were making little idols of Yahweh, like the, the real God, the living God, and worshiping them, God knows that we would end up worshiping the idol itself rather than him, the being behind the idol. But if it says that we are the idols of Yahweh, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's this invisible God behind all of this creation, all of this earth, and we are his representatives on earth, which are visible and tangible. Right? So, that begs the question, then, how would God act if he were on earth? And Christians, you know, Jewish people, but now Christians, 
would answer that by saying, well, we are his idols, so the way we act should be the way God acts. How, how would God act on earth? Would God be stabbing his brother, or would God be feeding the poor? Would God be gossiping, or would God be encouraging? Would God be creating, or would God be destroying? So everything kind of comes back to this idea of the image of God. Um, a lot of the- theologians would also point to the fact that the reason God cares so much about humans is because he cares much about himself. And if he cares about himself, and we are image bearers of himself, he then cares about us, right? He cares about the image of himself, which is conveyed through us. Does that make sense? Like, I know that kind of sound, it might sound cocky. It might make God sound like this big uh, egotistical narcissist. But the reason that humans are so gross when they're narcissistic is because we're not God. If you are God, it's not narcissistic to be concerned and obsessed with yourself. (laughs) Does that make sense? Because you actually are worthy of worship and you are worthy of praise and honor. When humans act like God, that's when it gets disgusting and you're like, no, dude, you're not that worthy of honor and worship. You know, but if you ever stand before a tidal wave and you just feel really small or you look up at the stars or... Any, anything like that, you just feel, anything that makes you feel like there is a tremendous, immeasurable amount of power right here that I'm beholding, and I have no way of, like, acting against it, think about that, that force, and that that's just one tiny little iota of the power of God who made the entire universe. So if anyone really is worthy of honor and praise and glory, it's him, And therefore, when he says, like, I have made you in my image, and I want to redeem you solely because you bear my image, he gets to say that, you know? So why are we important? Why do humans matter? Because we bear the image of God. Why does he care about us? Because we bear the image of God. Does that make sense? He's he's concerned with himself, and he's concerned with his image in us, and... That's why he has come and died for us and redeemed us. So anyway, let's move on. That's the image of God cursory overview. And there's a lot underneath that. People say like, well, you know, what's different between us and dolphins? Well, we can communicate. We can tell stories. We have relationships. And it's like, yeah, but penguins have relationships. And it's, 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 it's more than, it's, the sum is greater than its parts. You know that expression? It's not just one thing. It's like this communicative communicative idea that we can communicate. We tell stories. We have this transcendent connection to the divine. We feel things in ways that animals don't. There's just all of these things working together. Um, but even more than that, it's, it's more than all just those individual things. Because if you think about a disabled person, for instance, do they not bear the image of God because they can't tell stories because they can't, you know, their brain may not process in a way that can allow them to be creative. I'm like, no, of course not. Um, the reason that person matters is because they bear the image of God, not, not their ability to do X, Y, or Z things. So the image of God is much deeper than any individual identifiable thing. Those are like kind of like the things that we can point out and say, well, this makes us different than animals. Those are maybe um, 
the the leaves or the branches of the tree, but the image of God itself is the roots that you can't see, and yet that's like the source of the the being. It's deeper than what we can see or observe. Does that make sense? So the image of God, super fascinating, worth looking into more. Imago Day. So God creates the world. There's a lot of symbolism inside each of these days that takes place. There's um, a lot embedded in it. I don't want to get too sidetracked here. I want to get to chapter 3, which is where the fall of man happens. Now, something interesting that was pointed out to me recently, if you follow my blog, you read this, but um, it's interesting that the things that Christians often associate with Genesis 3 isn't actually in the text. It doesn't use the term the fall of man. It doesn't use phrases like, you know, original sin. Adam is the father of all sinners. And, you know, because they sin, it's passed down, transmitted to all of us. Like, that's not really communicated in this text. And yet we kind of take these assumptions about it and plug them into the text. So just worth noting what's actually there versus what we bring to the text. So um, before the fall of man, Adam and Eve are working. In 2.15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So Adam is working before sin enters the world. Isn't that crazy? Like you, th- you think like when I die... I'll never have to work another day in my life. (laughs) And you say, well, sorry, buddy. Looks like that's not going to be the case. However, there's no sin and there's no pain. So Adam's work must have not only felt good, but just been so satisfying. It's like, like the day that you have a big project and you finish it and you feel so accomplished and satisfied and you're like, look what I've created. Look what I've done. It's that kind of work, but without the labor and the stress and the pain and the toil. Um, I'll jump ahead a little bit, but you see in the curse in chapter 3, after Adam sins, that's exactly what gets cursed. God comes to him and says, uh, shoot, where is it? Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you are returned. So, prior to the fall, prior to sin, Adam worked. And it was great, and it was easy, and he enjoyed it. And it made him probably feel alive, the same way it made God feel alive, to call out this creation and to order it and to structure it and to you know make it sustainable, to cultivate life. And Adam was doing that same thing. And if we trust that in heaven, it's almost a kind of a return or a renewal of Eden, then that means that we'll be working too. We'll be creating things and in, in investing in culture and uh, participating in human livelihood, but it won't be stressful or painful or hierarchical. Um, actually, that last one, maybe not. I'm not sure about that. Um, hierarchy isn't necessarily sinful, but 
if there are hierarchies in heaven, they won't be oppressive or abusive. You know, we have this promise of renewal in a painless way. So in heaven, um, I believe there will be work and there will be rest. There will be recreation and joy and delight. Um, all of this with the taint of sin removed from it, right? So anyway, um, they're in the garden. Adam and Eve are working. And then the serpent comes to them and it tempts Eve to eat the fruit. And what does it do? It says, um, basically, he just kind of questions what God has said, and he adds to it. There's an interesting thing in verse uh, 3. The serpent says, you must not eat fruit from the tree, or sorry, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now, here's an interesting thing. God never said you can't touch the fruit, and yet Eve has this idea planted in her mind that not only can she not eat the fruit, but she can't touch it. So she's already kind of taken God's words, added to them, and twisted them up a little bit. So there's a lot of interesting sermons you could pull out of that about adding to God's word, twisting God's word, questioning God's word, um, versus actually just knowing it, being familiar with it, having it inside of you so that you know what it says. And if someone, you know, comes to you and brings up different points, you're able to say like, well, yeah, but the scripture says this, God has said this, um, and etc. So Satan and Eve kind of twist up God's words. She eats it. We get the impression in the text that Adam is nearby passively watching this happen. So in other words, a lot of people might say that man's first sin was being passive while his wife was tempted or, you know, led into sin in some way. And so um, the sin happens. And then what's the first thing God does? God does not come out swinging. He's not like this angry father um, who comes out like, you know, with the belt in his hand. He's like, come here, I'm going to whoop you. Like, that's not what God does. Nor does God turn his back on them and just abandon them and say, all right, you guys screwed up, I'm out. Neither of those things. God, all we see him do is he comes down to walk with Adam. You also kind of get the impression that they had this tradition where like every afternoon in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve and God would just kind of walk around the garden and chill. So God is coming up, she's showing up for his daily walk through the park with Adam, right? Because they have this unbroken relationship. God knows what happened, and yet he still shows up and says, hey, where are you? Adam is the one who runs and hides from God and, and realizes he's naked and tries to, like, clothe himself, right? And uh, hide from God. God doesn't say, like, you have sinned, you're evil. Like, right away, the first thing he does is he asks, asks him questions. So God's in the garden. Um, interesting side note, too. Um, whenever you have shame in your life, whenever you feel like you are unworthy of relationship, whether with God or with other people or even with yourself, just remember that that is you making yourself feel like you're shameful. And I would say it's the accuser. Satan is also referred to as the accuser, making you feel shame and and when we feel shame, the first thing we want to do is run and hide, hide ourselves away. And yet that's not 
That's the opposite of what God wants us to do. God wants this relationship with us in the open, not us to like run and hide from him and clothe ourselves with like, you know, all this stuff. Um, I had a professor at Moody who uh, he's like, this is my one little heresy that I get to have. And he said, if you have kids, you know that they'll run around buck naked, you know, all their life. They don't, they don't care at all. They're just running around naked until a certain day when they're a toddler. Every parent apparently knows that there's a certain day where it just, you know, changes. Boom. Suddenly, nobody can see them naked. They will never be seen naked in public again. You can't just change their diaper in front of the world. Um, they just, you know, they won't be naked anymore. And so my professor said, that is the day that they become accountable for their sins. I kind of like that theory because I was like, you know, that kind of makes a lot of sense. When Adam and Eve sinned, right away they realized that they were naked. So it makes sense that to a little kid, the day that they become aware of their nakedness is the day that they become, you know, responsible for their own sin. So I was like, that's a really interesting theory. I love it. Um, it makes a lot of sense. It's just a fun little thought. Anyway, um, God does end up laying out some curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And in case you didn't know this, this is the first place that Jesus is referenced in the entire Bible. So Genesis 3.15 is referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Proto-Evangelion. And I think it's Latin for first gospel, first good news. Um, because if you look at 3.15... Uh, actually, let me back up. I'll just read the entire curse of the serp serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right there. Right where it says, He... Who's the he it's referring to? The offspring of the woman. And is it like her direct offspring? Or is it like someone who would eventually come from Eve? Obviously, we believe that it's Jesus because Jesus eventually is a descendant of Eve and he eventually is struck on the heel by Satan, but his head, sorry, but Satan's head is crushed by Jesus. So if someone strikes your heel... You're not going to die, but it's going to hurt. But if someone crushes your head, you probably are going to die. And so um, there's this is the first place that we see reference to Jesus, like this promise of deliverance that evil will not prevail, but that a descendant of Eve, Jesus, will eventually come and will crush sin and death and the devil once and for all, Right? So this is the first reference to Jesus, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in the entire Bible, Genesis 3.15. So anyway, they get kicked out of the garden, and they get cursed. And in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. We'll come back to that. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drives the man out, he puts an angel there with a fiery sword to keep them out of the garden. So, 
That's the fall of man. Why, why does God use the plural also throughout that narrative? I would say it's just what's called a um, plural of majesty. Probably not a reference to the Trinity because they didn't know about the Trinity until after the New Testament was written. So it wouldn't make much sense for them to like embed that in there. But often in Hebrew, what they would do is you would refer to a noble person or a king or a majestic person in the plural. So for instance, if you're in Egypt, you're talking to a pharaoh, you might use they instead of he, right? Because nothing to do with like the modern day pronoun debate, but it's more like out of honor and majesty. You, you, you just use plural. Um, it could also refer to the divine host of heaven, like God and the angels. I really just don't think it was originally the Trinity. We can read it that way as Christians if we want. It's just a little historically untrue and inaccurate to the text. So how's this plug into the covenants? So like I said, some people call it the Adamic covenant. Some people call it the Edenic covenant for Adam and Eden, you know. But let's look at them. We have the three elements. First element is blood. Where do we see bloodshed made in this entire narrative? And it's, it's weird because this kind of happens after the fact. In verse 21, 321, it says that an animal was killed to cover their nakedness, right? So the bloodshed happens after everything else has already been said and done, right? So we have the bloodshed of this animal that died on their behalf because Adam and Eve were the ones who disobeyed and yet this animal was the one that suffered and died to clothe them, to hide their nakedness and their shame and um, essentially, it became a symbol that would be used throughout the rest of the Bible of this animal dying for human sin so they can be covered by it, right? And then um, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about Jesus being the ultimate lamb dying to cover all of our sins. So we have the blood, we have the blessings and curses. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. Some people I've heard refer to the Edenic and the Adamic covenants as two separate ones. Because you have the Edenic, which is when they're in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, where the rules are pretty simple. It's, you know, you work the land, have dominion over it, and everything will be good, but don't eat from these trees, right? So there are rules before Eden, they break the rules, and then they suffer the curses. So that might be called the Adamic Covenant, because this is what happens to Adam and Eve. And uh, they, they get these curses or these kind of new laws laid on them. And the, the best I can tell, the symbol, the sign seal symbol, is kind of wrapped into the blessings and curses in this one because, like, Adam, Eve, and the serpent all get their own unique curses, in a sense. Adam and Eve both have their labor cursed. You know, Adam with the work of his hands, working the soil, and Eve's labor in terms of childbirth, gets cursed. So they both have their labors cursed, respectively. And, uh, you know, God tells Eve, you'll have pain in childbirth. So the curses that are laid out in these passages also seem to function as the sign, right? Because if you have painful labor, both as a woman and a man, if it hurts to give birth to a child, then you're kind of reminded that there is this curse from Adam that, you know, they have broken covenant. We have all broken covenant with God. We are, we are not obedient as we should be. 
but instead we have broken covenant, therefore we have pain, right? And uh, we also take a little bit of hope from the curse on the serpent, which is that he will be destroyed by the offspring of Eve. So to me, the, the curses and the sign are wrapped up together. I'm not a scholar, an expert on Genesis, but that's just my understanding of it. So that's why these, that's why this covenant in, in particular is a little funky. I didn't want to start with it because, um, so just to recap, we have the blood, which is the animal killed after their sin. We have the blessings and curses, but in this case, it's mostly curses. Remember with Abraham, it was mostly blessing. In this one, it's mostly curses. The curses laid out for them, which also kind of function as the sign, seal, and symbol of their covenant which is the pain that we have in this existence. So I'm going to wrap it up there with the Edenic, Adamic covenant. Um, there's so much you could unpack in the first three chapters. I could do like a multi-week series just on those three chapters, but I had to condense them down just to try to fit it into this series. So I hope this series is helpful to you. I got feedback from someone. Shout out to Daniel. Uh, thanks so much for listening to these, bro. He gave me encouragement. He said, these are super interesting and helpful and keep them coming. So because of him, I'm keeping them coming. I love that kind of feedback. Even if you're like, yeah, this didn't really make sense to me. Or, you know, could you maybe go back and explain this a little bit more? Or this series is super boring. Actually, don't say that. It hurt my feelings. But um, I love feedback of any kind as long as it's positive, <laughs> or at least constructive. So um, you can always email me, ethan at ethreno.com. Just head to ethreno.com and you can find out about pretty much everything I'm doing. Also, um, Facebook, Ethreno Official. You have to add the official to get the page. Um, and then Twitter, Instagram, or just at Ethan Reno. So um, thanks so much. I look forward to connecting with all of you. If you're listening this far, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get through this covenant series in the next couple weeks. And um, I really hope it's beneficial to you and helps you understand the entire Bible more fully and accurately as it functions as a whole. So this has been Abscond with Ethan Renault, episode 30. Thanks for checking in, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.